Chapter Fifty One of the Sea of Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Thornton, Miranda, New Zealand. Mystery of the Sea by Bram Stoker. Chapter Fifty One, In the Sea Fog. For a few minutes I was engaged in a wild struggle to get away from the rocks, and not to be forced back by the shoreward rush and sweep of the waves. I was buffeted by them, and half choked by the boiling foam, but I kept blindly and desperately to my task, and presently knew that I had only to deal with the current and the natural rise and fall of the rollers. Down on the water the air was full of noises, so that it was hard to distinguish any individual sound, but the fog lay less dense on the surface than above it so that I could see a little better around me. On the sea there is always more or less light. Even in this time of midnight gloom, with moon and stars hidden by the fog, and with none of that phosphorescence which at times makes a luminous glow of its own over the water, I could see things at an unexpected distance. More than all was I surprised as well as cheered to find that I could distinguish the features of the land from the sea, better than I could from land discern anything at sea. When I looked back, the shore rose, a dark, uneven line, unbroken save where the haven of Dunbuy, running inland, made an angle against the sky. But beside me, the great rock of Dunbuy rose gigantic and black. It was like a mountain towering over me. The tide was running down, so that when I had got out of the current running inland behind the rock, I was in comparatively calm water. There was no downward current but only a slower backwater, which insensibly took me closer to the rock. Keeping in this shelter, I swam on and out. I saved myself as much as I could, for I knew of the terrible demand on my strength which lay before me. It must have been about ten minutes, though it seemed infinitely longer, when I began to emerge from the shelter of the rock and to find again the force of the outer current. The waves were wilder here too. Not so wild as just in shore before they broke, but they were considerably larger in their rise and fall. As I swam on, I looked back now and then, and saw Dunbuy behind me towering upward, though not so monstrously as when I had been under its lee. The current was beginning already to bear me downwards, so I changed my course and got back to the sheltered water again. Thus I crept round under the lee of the rock, till all at once I found myself in the angry race where the current beat on and off the cliff. It took me all my strength and care to swim through this. When the force of the current began to slacken, as I emerged from the race, I found myself panting and breathless with exertion. But when I looked around me from this point, where the east opened to me, there was something which restored all my courage and hope, though it did not still the beating of my heart. Close by, seemingly only a couple of hundred yards off to the northeast, lay a ship whose masts and spars stood out against the sky. I could see her clearly before a coming belt of fog bore down on her. The apprehension that I should miss her in the fog chilled me more than the sea-water in which I was immersed, for all possibilities of evil became fears to me now that the realization of my vision was clear. I was glad of the darkness. It was a guarantee against discovery. I swam on quietly, and was rejoiced to find as I drew close that I was on the port side of the ship. Well I remembered how in my vision the boat approached port, to the surprise of the men who were looking out for it on the other side. 
I found the rope ladder easily enough, and did not have much difficulty in getting a foothold on it. Ascending cautiously, and watching every inch of the way, I climbed the bullock, and hid behind a water-barrel close to the mast. From this security I looked out, and saw the backs of several men ranged along the starboard bulwark. They were intent on their watching, and unsuspicious of my proximity. So I stole out, and glided as silently as I could into the cabin's entrance. It was not new to me. I had a sense of complete security as to my knowledge. The eyes of Gormala's soul were keen. In the cabin I recognized at once the smoky lamp and the rude preparations for food. Thus emboldened, I came to the door, behind which I knew Marjorie lay. It was locked and bolted, and the key was gone. I slid back the bolt, but the lock baffled me. I was afraid to make the slightest noise, lest I should court discovery. So I passed on to the next cabin, where was her jailer. He lay just as in the vision I had seen him. The chronometer was above him, and the two heavy revolvers hung underneath it. I slipped in quietly. There were not shoes to remove, and reaching over so that the water would not drip from my wet underclothing on his face, unhooked the two weapons. I belted them around my waist with the strap on which they hung. Then I looked round for the key, but could see no sign of it. There was no time to lose. It was neither time nor place to stand on ceremony. So I took the man by the throat with my left hand, the dagger being in my right, and held with such a grip that the blood seemed to leap into his face in a second. He could utter no sound, but instinctively his hand went back and up to where the revolvers had hung. I whispered in a low tone, "'It's no use. Give me the key. I don't value your life a pin.' He was well plucked, and he was manifestly used to tight places. He did not attempt to speak or parley, but whilst I had been whispering, his right hand got hold of a knife. It was a bowie, and he was dexterous with it. With some kind of sharp wrench he threw it open. There was a click as the backspring worked. If I had not had my dagger ready, it would have been a bad time for me. But I was prepared. Whilst he was making the movement to strike at me, I struck. The keen point of the Spanish dagger went right through his upturned wrist, and pinned his hound down to the wooden edge of the bunk. Whilst, however, he had been trying to strike with his right hand, his left had clutched my left wrist. He tried now to loose my grip from his throat. Whilst bending his chin down, he made a furious effort to tear at my hand with his teeth. Never in my life did I more need my strength and weight. The man was manifestly a fighter, trained in many a wild rough and tumble, and his nerves were like iron. I feared to let go the hilt of the dagger, lest in his violent struggling he should tear his wrist away and so free his hand. Having, however, got my right knee raised, I pressed down with it his arm on the edge of the bunk, and so freed my right hand. He continued to struggle ferociously. I knew well it was life and death, not only for me, but for Marjorie. It was his life or mine, and he had to pay the penalty for his crime. So intent was I on the struggle that I had not heard the approach of the boat with his comrades. It was only when I stood panting, with the limp throat between my fingers which were white at the knuckles with the strain, that the sound of voices and the tramp of feet on deck reached my intelligence. Then, indeed, I knew there was no time to lose. I searched the dead man's pockets and found a key, which I tried in the lock of Marjorie's cabin. When I opened the door, she started up. The hand in her bosom was whipped out with a flash, and in an instant a long steel bonnet-pin was ready to drive into her breast. My agonized whisper! Marjorie, it is I! Only just reached her mind in time to hold her hand. She did not speak, but never can I forget the look of joy that illumined her poor pale face. I put my finger on my lip, 
and held out my hand to her. She rose with the obedience of a child and came with me. I was just going out into the cabin when I heard the creak of a heavy footstep on the companionway, so I motioned her back and, drawing the dagger from my belt, stood ready. I knew who it was that was coming, yet I dared not use the pistols, save as a last resource. I stood behind the door. The negro did not expect anyone, or any obstacle. He came on unthinkingly, save for whatever purpose of evil was in his mind. He was armed, as were all the members of the blackmail gang. In a belt across his shoulder, slung Kentucky fashion, were two great seven-shooters, and across his waist behind was a great bowie-knife, with a handle ready to grasp. Moreover, nigger-like, the handle of a razor rose out of his breast-pocket of his dark flannel shirt. He did not, however, manifestly purpose using his weapons, at present at any rate. There was not any sign of danger or opposition in front of him. His comrades were busy at present in embarking the treasure, and would be for many an hour to come, in helping to work the ship clear into safety. Every minute now the wind was rising, and the waves swelling to such proportions that the anchored ship rocked like a bell-boy in a storm. In the cabin I had to hold on, or I should have been shot from my place into view. But the huge negro cared for none of these things. He was callous to everything, and there was such a wicked, devilish purpose in his look that my heart hardened grimly in the antagonism of man to man. Nay more, it was not a man that I loathed. I would have killed this beast with less compunction than I would have killed a rat or a snake. Never in my life did I behold such a wicked face. In feature and expression there was every trace and potentiality of evil, and these superimposed on a racial brutality which made my gorge rise. Well indeed did I understand now the one terror which had in all her troubles come to Marjorie, and how these wretches had used it to mould her to their ends. I knew now why, sleeping or waking, she held that steel spike against her heart. If the thought was too much for me, even now, though I was beside her, she was beset by her enemies. We were both still practically prisoners on a hostile ship, and even now this demon was intent on unspeakable wrong. I did not pause, I did not shrink from the terrible task before me. With a bound I was upon him, and I had struck at his heart struck so truly and so terrible a blow that the hilt of the dagger struck his ribs with a thud like the blow of a cudgel. The blood seemed to leap out at me, even as the blow fell. With spasmodic reaction he tumbled forwards, fell without a sound, and so quickly that had not I, fearing lest the noise of his falling might betray me, caught him, he would have dropped like a stricken bullock. Never before did I understand the pleasure of killing a man. Since then, it makes me shudder when I think of how so potent a passion, or so keen a pleasure, can rest latent in the heart of a righteous man. It may have been that between the man and myself was all the antagonism that came from race and fear and wrongdoing, but the act of his killing was to me a joy unspeakable. It will rest with me as a wild pleasure till I die. I took all the arms he had about him, two revolvers and a knife. They would give me fourteen more shots were I hard-pressed. In any case, they were safer so far as Marjorie and I were concerned in my hands than in those of our enemies. I dragged the body of the negro into the cabin with the other dead man. Then I closed the door on them, and when Marjorie joined me, I locked the door of her cabin and took away the key. In case of suspicion, this might give us a few minutes of extra time. Marjorie came with me up on deck, and as she caught sight of the open sea, there was an unspeakable gladness on her face. 
we seized a favourable opportunity when no one was looking for all on deck were busy hauling up the treasure and slipped behind the cask fastened to the mast there we breathed freely we both felt that if the worst came to the worst we could get away before anyone could touch us one rushed to the bollocks and over they would never attempt to follow us and there was a chance of a swim to shore i gave marjorie a belt with two revolvers as she strapped it on she felt safer i knew it by the way she drew herself up and threw back her shoulders when the last of the bags which held the treasure came on board the men who had come with it closed in a ring around the mass as it lay on deck they were all armed i could see that they did not trust the sailors for each moment someone's hand would go back to his gun we heard one of them ask as he looked around what has become of that damned nigger he must have taken his share of work marjorie was very brave and very still i could see that her nerve was coming back to her after a little whispered conversation the newcomers began to carry the bags down to the cabin it was slow work for two always stood guard above and two remained down below evidently on similar duty discovery of the dead man must come soon so marjorie and i stole behind the foremast which was well away from everyone she was first and as she began to pass behind she recoiled she got the drop on someone in front of her there was a smothered shh and she lowered her weapon turning to me she said in a faint whisper it is the spaniard what is he doing here i whispered back be good to him he is a noble fellow and has behaved like a knight of old i pressed forward and took his hand how did you get here i asked his answer was given in so faint a voice that i could see that he was spent and tired if not injured i swam too when i saw their boat pull out of the northern channel i managed to scramble down part of the cliff and then jumped fortunately i was not injured it was a long weary swim and i thought i should never be able to get through but at last the current took me and carried me to the ship she was anchored with a hawser not a cable i managed to climb up it and when i was on board i cut it nearly through even as he spoke there was a queer lurch of the ship which lay stern forward and a smothered ejaculation from all the seamen the hawser had parted and we were drifting before the wind and tide then it was that i felt we should give warning to the yacht and the battleship i knew that they were not far off had i not seen them in my vision which had now been proven then it was also the words of the young american that came back to me give us a lie if you have to fire the ship to get to it all this time from the moment when i set foot on the whaler's deck till this instant events had moved with inconceivable rapidity there had been one silent breathless rush during which two lives had been taken and marjorie set free only a few minutes had elapsed in all and when i looked around under the altered conditions things seemed to be almost where they had been it was like the picture in one's mind made by a lightning flash when the period of reception is less than the time of the smallest action a movement is lost in time the fog belt was thinning out and there was in the night air a faint suggestion that one might see if there were anything to be seen the great rock of dunby towered up i could just distinguish so much on the land side whilst i was looking up there came a sudden light and then a whirr high overhead through the sea fog we could see faintly the fiery trail of a rocket instantly out at sea there was an answer a great ray of light shot upwards and we could see its reflection in the sky none of us said anything but instinctively marjorie and i clasped hands then the light ray seemed to fall downward to the sea 
but as it came down the fog seemed to grow thicker and thicker till the light was lost in its density. There was stir of all on our ship. No loud word was spoken, but whispered directions given with smothered curses flew. Each man of the crew seemed to run to his post, and with a screeching and straining the sails rose. The vessel began to slip through the water with added speed. Now, if ever, was our time to warn our friends. The little rockets which I had brought had been sodden with water and were useless, and besides we had no way of getting a light. The only way of warning was by sound, and the only sound to carry was a pistol shot. For an instant I hesitated, for a shot meant a life if we should be pushed to it. But it must be done, so signing to the others, I ran aft, and when close to the mast, fired my revolver. Instantly around me was a chorus of curses. I bent double and ran back. Seeing through the darkness, vague forms rushed to where I had been. The fog was closing thicker around us. It seemed to boil over the bullocks as we passed along. We had either passed into another belt of fog, or one was closing down upon us with the wind. The sound of the pistol shot had evidently reached the warship. She was far off us, and the sounds came faintly over the waste of stormy sea, but there was no mistaking the cheer, followed by commands. These sounded faint and hoarsely. A few words were spoken with a trumpet, and then came the shrill whistle of the boatswain's pipe. On our own deck was a rushing to and fro, and frenzied labour everywhere. The first object was to get away from the searchlight. They would seek presently, no doubt, for who had fired the betraying shot. If I could have known what to do, so as to stay our progress, there would have been other shots, for now that we were moving through the water, every second might take us further from the shore and place us deeper in the toils of our foes. End of chapter 51